As always, with your loved ones, people love podcast recommendations. <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day um, about uh, our podcast, and she's like, I just feel like the podcast space is saturated. Fair enough. <laughs> also, <laughs> you want to listen to ours? No? It's saturated? Cool, cool, cool. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessa Nagash from San Diego State University. Today, Sessa will bring us a conversation about step parenting after divorce. Then we're going to jump to our academic deep dive segment and discuss the new article titled Help Unwanted, Why the Most Powerful Allies Are the Most Likely to Stumble. Ooh, wow, what a title. And When They Fulfill Their Potential. And then, in good or bad advice, we'll be talking about advice about grandparenthood hmm, interesting step parents and grandparenthood and stumbling oh interesting if you have advice you'd like us to talk about please send it to us email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us facebook us instagram us all at attached podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message for bonus content and to support this wee little podcast please go to our patreon page patreon.com slash attached and consider becoming a member also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, please consider to kindly rate and review, and then of course, subscribe to it. A great lineup we have for today's episode, but before we get to all that, how are things going? Tell me about y'all's lives. Woods, what's up? What's new? What's happening? Hip? Cool? Um, I'm not even sure that I have anything cool to share. Uh, I have been in the market for a new bathing suit lately. And I think maybe even last episode, my update was related to shopping, but more about like judging what was available. I think if you wanted to judge a specific area of merchandise, uh, bathing suits would be also a good option to choose. I do find that already at this point in the year, um, I would say a lot of bathing suits are sold out, which is confusing because I live in a warm part of the country. And if anyone should be looking for bathing suits by now, it's not all the northerners who bought them up for their Florida spring breaks. And I don't ever try. I mean, I haven't for years, but certainly starting 2020 and beyond, I don't shop in stores anymore. Everything is sent to me if I end up checking out. And um, (laughs) bathing suits are particularly uh, an area where I just don't need to be trying those on in stores. But I'm not sure how much better it is when they come to your house and then you try it on and you're like, what even is this? And I don't know why I feel like each year there's more experiences of where like you put a bathing suit on, you're like, what? There's an extra strap hanging up. There's extra parts and pieces to bathing suits. You're like... In the picture, it looked like it'd be easy to assemble, but then you get it, even in your own home, and you're like, I don't, I'm only five feet tall. Why is this bathing suit too short? (laughs) What is happening? Anyways, so that is what I've been up to lately that um, I don't recommend uh, Mm. as a hobby, um, but it's been on my mind. I feel like we should be doing better at bathing suits by now, but mixed bag, mixed shopping bag. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) 
So any luck at all? Have you gotten purchased no. a bathing suit at home? And the problem is, as I shared several episodes ago, I really purged a lot of my home when we moved. And I decided it would motivate me to actually purchase a bathing suit if I got rid of ones that were, you know, five to ten years old. Oh, sure. That was the wrong move. I miss oh, no. those destroyed bathing suits. <laughs> so no luck yet. I'm sorry. I'll keep trying. That's okay. Well, positive vibes your way that you'll find a bathing suit. Yeah. I mean, it's not my favorite piece of clothing. But to be fair, no. it's not most people's favorite, so. It's true. Huh. Well, interesting food for thought. Sesson, what's going on in your life? Uh, anything hip? Cool? No. Really, no. Uh, I mean. Oh. oh, that was a deep breath. I mean, the thing in my life that has been consuming me lately is my insomnia. So I don't know, like everything mm. I'm uh, seeing, you know, in the world is colored through this like lack of sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Fair. And um, so, yeah, I'm just really working on it. I feel really, really bad for people who struggle with insomnia their whole life. I mean, I've been struggling with it for like a week and a half and it's like trying (sighs) but I'm doing all kinds of things that I would recommend others do, you know, Okay. the green teas and the calming meditation music. Green tea has caffeine in it though. Right. I thought it didn't. Yeah. It has caffeine in it. I can't stand herbal teas besides green and even green. I agree. And yes, it also has caffeine. I mean, unless they took it out. Unless it's decaf green tea. Sure. I don't think it was. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. That's a quick solution we just came up with, though. I mean, starting tonight. <laughs> no one has mentioned, like, my green tea is, like, caffeinated. Carlos will be quick to tell me my black tea is, and I'm like, of course I know that, but um, I can't do chamomile. I can't do peppermint. Like, we have all these varieties. Yeah. I just can't handle it. So, well, let's see how that helps. I mean, I've been <laughs> melatonin and that's been helping a little bit. I love melatonin. I just discovered it. I mean, so fantastic. Caffeine free. <laughs> it is caffeine free, especially when your brain can't like shut off at night. It really helps me with that initial falling asleep. It's like oh, if yeah. you have a problem yeah. waking up in the middle of the night, that's not going to help you. But yeah, and it was both. It's like getting to bed. There was one night I literally was up until I went to bed at like 9.30 or 10 and I was up till five, just sitting oh my there, my God. eyes wide open. And I was like, I thought about every aspect of my life during that. Oh my God. Does your you know heart you rate go breath? up? It's so yes. awful. I woke up with like irregular breathing. And <gasps> I think oh, I had just gone through like a whole like anxiety attack while I was laying down. Oh my <laughs> God. Oh. Because you know when you're sleeping, we wake up in the middle of the night, you have racing thoughts, right? It's like I one know. comes in, the other comes out, and then it's just like constant. And I spent hours doing it, and then I woke up and I couldn't breathe normally for like days. And I was like, huh, this is going to be a problem if I don't figure out a solution. Oh my God. Yes. So I wouldn't say it's fun or hip, but it is definitely a thing. So whenever that, because it does happen to me quite often, uh, probably minimum once a month so like waking up like getting out of bed when it's like doing that if the melatonin doesn't work and just watching like a rom-com or something that's just purely like that's mine right like that's something that will make me so happy and joyful and just like take my mind out of it like is what I need to do is just go do something get out of bed because that's not working 
and then mm. go I usually end up laying on the couch and sometimes I just watch sound of music <laughs> till one in the morning and then I'm like oh I'm tired now I'm gonna fall asleep <laughs> oh mercy our brains man they mess with really us. I put my bathing suit update in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did have me nervous about bathing suits, though. I'm like, I'm trying to get to Europe and I'm trying to find like the right bathing suit for the Europeans. Oh. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't either. No, no, I just no. usually plan. Going by my... childhood stereotypes. Is it just not no bathing suit? <laughs> just forget it entirely. <laughs> bathing suit Less optional. More. Bottoms more. only. <laughs> I don't know. Pits yeah. flying in the wind. Um, that's what mine do after nursing three children, at least. Whatever. Um, don't judge. Um, so spring is in the air. Uh, the pollen is literally mm. everywhere. Up my nostrils and my eyeballs. Um, but that that's means nice. there's tons of flowers, and that's lovely. So we're doing some spring stuff. Um I remember many, many episodes ago, I talked about how I never wanted to get my kids into sports where it was like intense practices and um, games once a week. We remember this. Well, no longer, ladies and gentlemen, my middle child has started soccer. Um, yes, nice. He and while I am like, oh, good. Another thing to drive a child to twice a week. Um, he loves it. So I am happy for that. Um, he's so adorable. As I'm sure I've seen talked about in other episodes, he loves like Pokemon and like monsters and like he just loves kind of like that fantasy. I don't know what that is. Like he's created this whole entire world of monsters that he has created and they all are different types and like he makes games out of it. Like he loves so cool. stuff like that. He's a cool kid, man. Um, but how this manifests on the soccer field when, during practice is when the coach says, okay, high knee jumps to the cone and then sprint back. He'll do the high knee jumps. And when he turns and sprints back, he throws his arms behind him like he's a superhero and runs like <laughs> headlong as fast as he can. We're not using regular jogging arms. We are sure. fully in superhero mode. <laughs> and he, I think he also made a sound effect. So I'm like, listen, that's oh, my kid. Oh my God, stop. I love it so much. <laughs> He's so I cute. love it. And I couldn't help but just like giggle because he is the uh, silliest, funniest kid. Oh my gosh. It's so amazing. hilarious. That he loves it so much. He's in his own world. That's like he'll randomly put things up and I'm like, oh. That little man, I'll talk to my husband. I'm like, oh, he's so funny. He's just always in his own little world. His brain is always off somewhere. And we are just joking and laughing about him. And then that afternoon, my husband sent me a photo of the coffee press <laughs> up in like the pantry, full of coffee beans, like full of pressed coffee, like just put up there. Yes, that was me. I just was putting things up and apparently without thinking just put it up and I'm like oh he comes by it naturally that's the, his brain being in its own world is he got that from me not my husband it's fully my fault anyway oh kids I love him so much first up Pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. 
For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sasson, what you got for us this week? So those of you who follow pop culture um, may have heard that um, there's- 100% me all the way. You know, I don't assume all of us do and um, some of us more than others, but anybody who generally follows pop culture, I think, has heard that there's like an impending divorce between um, Amy Robach and her maybe soon to be ex-husband, Andrew Hsu from Melrose Place, which (gasps) I crush on him back in the day. And um, in this, you know, stem from a relationship that she started to, well, maybe not stem from it, but in part of the mix was this um, relationship that she had with her co-star. Um, I think it was Good Morning America, TJ Holmes. And, um, you know, it's been in the news for several months now, but Didn't again- they both get yeah. fired for this too? I think they were released. Oh, oh, terminology. Released. I think they were released and uh, with some severance. So fired and severance don't always go together. So (laughs) fair enough. Um, So this week they made headlines or I should say the family, I guess, made headlines when Amy Rohrbach's daughter from a different relationship um, went to hang out, had a meal or something with Andrew Shu and his son. So I'm like, huh, this is news. Okay. Like I do a lot of things, but um, I thought about, you know, like interesting how this is sort of news and why it's news. But, you know, it sort of makes sense because, you know, as we know, in the United States, a large number of folks um, get married and get divorced. But um, the divorce rate is even higher among um, folks who are marrying for the second time or who are in relationships um, and bring children into those relationships. So it's not uncommon if a couple were to marry and have children um, from other relationships and then become married to maybe get divorced and then to to sort of try to figure out what is the relationship with the stepchild after divorce, right? What does that look like? Um, You know, legally, um, the step-parent has no claim to the stepchild um, unless they formally had like adopted them, right? So, you know, it really is to the discretion of the parent of that child, the biological parent, or um, if the child is no longer a child and an adult or a bit older for them to sort of make that choice for themselves. But, you know, there's still some tension, I imagine, there and some loyalty stuff that comes up even when you're older and deciding whether or not to establish a relationship with the person who's now divorced from your parent. Um, So take, for example, like, you know, an ex-husband who spends like a decade Um, or more raising his stepchildren. And then, you know, he and his partner decide to separate ways and divorce. What does that mean for the stepchild in terms of that relationship? You know, if it was a biological parent, the assumption would be that they would maintain that contact, that there would be some agreements made around how to engage in that relationship in terms of time spent and stuff like that. But it seems a lot more gray and like, there's more less certainty when it comes to step parents and you know there's i think some like expectations that people might have but may not know how to like communicate around like what that should look like so i just sort of wanted to bring that up you know there's a bond that step children often develop with the Mm step parent right and the divorce or the relationship ending has nothing to do with them and in fact they may be the reason why 
the person stayed in the relationship as long as mm-hmm. they did. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when the parents decide they don't want to be together, but they still want to have that relationship? Um, how do folks navigate that, especially when there's no legal system to like, you know, really um, push the bio parent to really um, create an opportunity for them to see each other? So, you know, there's, again, a lack of social norms and expectations for uh, ex-step parents um, after remarriage ends. So I just thought like, you know, have you all sort of seen that play out maybe with some of your clients or, you know, in your own world um, and how people have navigated that? I mean, I think it's a great question. And, you know, the I'm sure there's legal precedence for it, but like you're saying, it's not necessarily uh, common to hear about like disputes like that unless there is a legal adoption situation. Um, And certainly if there is research out there about it, it's very, very limited. There is some step parenting research, but usually that's about more uh, blending families together when the two step parents are married not necessarily after the fact and there is divorce research but not blending those two bodies of literature together in my own personal experience um, I do have a stepmother who's no longer my stepmother but the mother of my half brother Um, and that relationship probably ended when I was 20-ish Um, So I was old enough to like have email conversations with her, um, but we weren't necessarily close to begin with. So it just kind of stayed the same, but that's been my only experience. And I was an adult and had the free will to kind of maintain that. But um, yeah, it's a really good question. Woods, what are you thinking? Um, I think it's really important to remember that legal definitions of families often don't align with real life lived experience on the ground family relationships. The people we define as family often don't align with legally what we would use to define as family. And so I think this can happen a lot in blended families that are um, negotiating how to separate and come together and what this looks like across marriages um, or partnerships uh, and what that looks like for kids. And that may not be reflected in the nuance that the law captures because legally we just do not do a very good job of capturing or sort of attending to um, uh, nuance in family relationships. And we don't do a very good job legally of also... promoting whole family well-being and making divorce as um, uh, least not, conflictual as yeah. possible, right? I was going to say and non-adversarial, so, but yeah. Yeah, so I think um, your point, Susan, about sort of how this can evolve um, can end up impacting kids and their well-being by prioritizing sort of how the divorce is um, decreed legally and not necessarily accounting for that uh, stepkids may very well benefit from continued relationship with the person that was their stepparent. Um, and so I think clinically speaking, there are, um, I've met with lots of adults who will reflect on, for example, a stepparent who became 
um, an ex-step parent at some point during maybe their childhood or early adulthood was maybe the person who supported them most in their life. And they're very grateful to have had them even if they no longer have contact with them because of the way that that separation occurred that they didn't have control over. Um, so I think it's really important to remember that there's long range benefits from that step parenting relationship that legally when we sort of divide that out um, and take away kids' relationships from a legal perspective, um, it doesn't mean that I don't see then those kids grow up and become adults and say that that, I mean, sometimes it really is the relationship that kept them going when they were younger. So I think um, when you can navigate this, especially separating in a way that is as amicable as possible and really sort of taking into account what the kids need and may benefit from and that that's going to be flexible. That's going to change over time. Schedules change, developmental needs change, right? Like your stepkid may not be sort of uh, sure how to navigate that when they're younger and also may need more time or connection with you face-to-face when they're littler, may sort of... um, pull away when they're a little bit older and then come back, this can sort of change and adapt over time. Uh, but I really appreciate you bringing this up, Sess, and I think it's not something we talk about very often in families. We don't. And I think, you know, I was reading some statistics that said about one third of children at some point in their childhood have a step-parent. It's like, that's <laughs> one third is like a very large number. And to think we don't really have some clear understandings about that is really interesting to me. And I really think, um, like you said, there's a lot of nuance there, but I think having conversations as the parents, as the adults, and setting some really clear boundaries. So there's not this immediate cutoff that's expected to be had, or this like enmeshment where everybody just doesn't have any rules to what happens next, which could also be really messy and complicated, but just having And this is part of, I think we've talked about this in other segments before. It's like, how do you navigate divorce and relationships ending? There's so much um, that people are going through emotionally trying to move through that process Mm -hmm. that they don't always center the needs of the children, not because they don't want to, but the capacity in that particular Mm -hmm. moment is not there. And so it could easily be lost on the parents Mm -hmm. to think about, wow, this person was a significant person in their life, whether they were biologically related Mm -hmm. or not. And how do we make sure that that is a relationship that they can maintain if they want without entangling like the parents together. So it just requires a lot of adulting, (laughs) a lot of, you know, hard, mature conversations and engagements. And so, but I think it's a conversation more people should be having because this is a reality terms of like the number of people experiencing this and the divorce literature would say that usually there's a spike in like conflict and disagreement but over time the vast majority of dyads and families find that resolution and are able to get along but that conflict is typical in trying to um one be aware that um, the conflict is normative and trying to rise above it, I think is important, but also know that the literature suggests that it's a temporary state, like it's not permanent mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to try and move through it as gracefully as you can and figure out what those new boundaries are, figure out um, what those new rules are so that um, the children and also the adults can mm-hmm. um, learn a new normal for them. Well, and I think really important too, like you're talking about that, um, 
how we blend those families to begin with is sort of the start of how you do that intentionally, right? So just like you're talking about intentionally sort of disentangling step families, I think a lot of what can drive how well that process goes is how intentional we are about blending families to begin with, right? If I see a step parent as my family, regardless of legal definition, regardless of genetic definition, cultural, right? Like if that's part of how we blended together is that we're part of family, that's going to be, I would imagine, an even bigger loss after the fact. And so really Mm -hmm. sort of attending to that through intentionally negotiating boundaries all along will benefit you no matter the trajectory of what the course of your step family, um, especially for kids, but also for these step parents for whom that can be an enormous loss when you lose access to a step kid because of a divorce. Um, that's also an enormous loss for adults too. Absolutely. Yeah. Allyship and actively supporting the rights and inclusion of marginalized members of our society can be a powerful force for encouraging inclusivity. When someone is a member of the, quote, dominant group, for example, in the U.S., someone who identifies as a man or white and serves as an ally by working to advance the equity and opportunities of marginalized groups such as black or African-American neighbors, LGBTQIA plus persons, women, or disability communities, that support can sometimes go a really long way. The voices of allies who are members of dominant groups are sometimes more likely to be heard and listened to by decision makers with power. And as we discussed in episode five of this season, allies' voices may help to challenge bias experienced by marginalized friends or colleagues and at far less risk to themselves than the person experiencing discrimination may face. However, although allyship could be a game changer for equity and inclusion, it isn't always. Members of marginalized groups are often, understandably, weary of getting support from dominant group members who may, for example, only offer help to, quote, look good and improve their image, or who may have other ulterior motives that makes them untrustworthy. Although the power differential between allies and who allies advocate for may be especially why support for allies could be so effective, it's also the exact reason why allyship can go so easily awry. In today's Academic Deep Dive, we're discussing a new article in the Journal of Research and Organizational Behavior titled Help Unwanted, Why the Most Powerful Allies Are the Most Likely to Stumble and When They Fulfill Their Potential by Dr. Karen Knowlton at Dartmouth and her colleagues, Dr. Andrew Carlton and Adam Grant at UPenn, apply a relational lens to understand what gets in the way of effective allyship and how allies can use the great power they have with great responsibility, a la Spider-Man, right? So, uh, Sarah, tell me, am I right? Was that, in fact, a Spider-Man reference? I believe it was. I'm not sure the authors make a Spider-Man reference, but it's all I could hear uh, while I was reading this paper. So this paper is not actually, unlike the research we would normally talk about in Academic Deep Dive, it's not um, reflective of a specific research study that's been done, but more, as you talked about, Patricia, these authors looking at 
the relationship between people who can serve as allies and people from marginalized groups and what that relationship can look like and how impacted it is by power. Um, And as you describe, Patricia, what they um, talk about is how power can make it really challenging uh, to be an effective ally. And that's for a few different reasons. Um, And what they talk about first is that power can make it really difficult for members of dominant groups to establish what they consider two really important pieces of being trustworthy. So they describe benevolence and competence. So in other Mm. words, um, to reduce inequity, members of dominant groups Uh, which, as you shared, Patricia, um, might include in this country, uh, men and people who identify as white, must be willing to share and sometimes even give up some of their own power, um, which in truth a lot of people don't like to do. And also a lot of people in dominant groups who are... um, going through life with a lot of advantage may also not see all that that power conveys, right? That it's um, pretty easy to sort of ignore all of the benefits of that power differential. Um, That advantage protects them from really understanding or largely protects them from experiencing hardships that people in marginalized groups um, face every day, uh, that they are um, really systematically prevented from living to sort of a full social, political, or economic participation in how our society operates. Um, So that power differential, especially these authors make the point that people who could serve as allies but have the most power in systems where we live, um, they are especially talking about organizations maybe related to the workplace. Um, It can really change how allies behave, but it also can intensify worry among marginalized group members that those people, those allies, or people who are acting as allies, rather, may be especially untrustworthy. That difference, that paradox that they talk about gets worse with more power, Um, in part because people who have more power are also more likely to justify the system that they're operating in. They're less likely to see all of the issues because of that blinding function of the privilege that they experience, and also because that power is really giving them a lot of advantage. So they're more likely to say, well, this system mostly works. We probably just need to change a few pieces versus sort of seeing big picture. Just a few things. Um, And also, it's really understandably challenging to sort of take people's desire to be helpful at face value. Uh, It feels like maybe you have something sort of either personal at stake, you're looking to get out of this. Um, maybe you sort of enjoy that sense of superiority. You're coming yeah. here to help from sort of um, uh, as a white savior or it's really paternalistic advice you're giving or like rather than sort of offering help or support in terms of what we might find most helpful, you've come here with your own agenda and it's pretty clear you're looking to get something out of it. Um, and do you honestly understand uh, well enough the position that you might be putting us in by advocating for us uh, because it doesn't really seem like you have the experience you need to be able to be an effective ally. So what they talk about is that in thinking about this relational lens that they're using and thinking about this power differential, how can people looking to be allies be more effective at it? And they really focus on this concept of behavioral humility. So this is creating Um, balance in that power differential by three different ways that they talk about. Um, So first, seeking input 
and advice before you even get to helping. So really showing Mm. openness and not a symbolic gesture, that it has to be really genuine and um, asking how you can be helpful, um, helping to sort of leverage or put um, uh, members of marginalized groups uh, in positions that are talking about what needs to change, helping to put them in positions of Um, leadership and being in charge and letting them be more of a driving force, Um, uh, supporting their being in positions where they can be a driving force helps to decrease maybe blind spots um, and also is making sure that that's really about, I want to learn how to be most helpful rather than I've come here with my own ideas about how I want to be an ally. Here's what I'm pretty sure people of marginalized groups must need from me because that's Mm -hmm. not very helpful. Second, they talk about, again, that benevolence and competence piece, right? That first, we can backstage um, uh, ourselves. So people from dominant groups can backstage their own contributions, which they say um, it can be really helpful to admit past mistakes um, and literally sharing the stage and inviting people from marginalized groups to join you in um, activities that are going to be really visible and lead to a lot of... um, maybe credit or uh, benefits, right? And also spotlighting uh, marginalized individuals during the helping process. So reflecting any attention you get back onto marginalized groups, propping up um, voices that need to be heard from marginalized groups, and drawing attention to missing voices when you're in spaces with lots of members of the dominant group. So who's not here at this table that we need to really make sure we get to the table? And then we need to be able to listen to them and make sure that we're sort of reinforcing that uh, these members of this marginalized group have shared would be really important. How are we going to listen to that? Um, And then third, really uh, seeking feedback after helping. So really Mm. um, showing how teachable you can be by being genuinely interested in learning. How did you feel my approach was to including your voice in that conversation? Um, This the author's point to is best done when you have um, helped to invite and involve people from marginalized groups to the table from the beginning. I'm much more likely to give you feedback after the fact if I thought you thought this was valuable that I be part of this process from the whole beginning. Um, And the goal being to really um, stop hoarding power uh, and really share power intentionally and doing it effectively so that um, uh, this is not just about the person who is seeking to be an ally so you can be trustworthy. I think um, an important caveat here that the authors make too is that people looking to be allies going through these steps are still also asking for emotional labor, that people who are asked to be at the table, share their ideas, spotlighted, asked to give feedback, they're still if they're from a marginalized group, going to need to manage strong emotions and reactions to keep themselves safe. And this is a lot of emotional labor. And they also may, um, we want to be respectful of that too, if we're going to be in a really creating a safe relationship space for allyship to be taking place. But I thought this was a nice piece that looked at this relationship from a really uh, power-based lens and gave some pretty specific strategies to use for people interested in pursuing allyship. And after episode five, we talked about the bias piece. I think it was episode 10, we talked about building um, anti-racist workplaces. I thought this was a nice sort of third next step um, uh, to make this maybe a little bit more tangible. 
I love it. Thanks for sharing. Before I talk, I'm really curious what Sesson thinks. I saw you taking notes, so I am curious. No, I mean, <clears throat> so it's interesting to me, this idea of allyship, and I've mm -hmm. been interested in it for a while, especially as it became sort of like a, what do you call those words that become really popular? Um, oh, catchphrase. Catchphrase, yeah. I was going to say hot topic, but I think that's like a store. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but a catchphrase that his sort of, uh, mm. a lot of people have picked up on in recent years. Um, and I really appreciate that we're bringing some nuance to the conversation around it, because I think the way we tend to talk about it doesn't really have a lot of color. It's really like, you're either an ally or you're not, right? And it's like, okay, well, how do you do it? How do you do it well? How do you do it in yeah. a way that really um, is promoting the community that you're trying to be an ally you know, with, like, I think it takes more than I want to be an ally, you know, it's more than words. Um, and I almost, to some extent, have an issue sometimes with the word ally, because it sort of puts sort of, um, like, immediately the discussion becomes about the ally, right? The identity mm, sure. of the ally. And it's like, even the word ally, it suggests like they're a member of something, like they have like an identifying with a group. It's like, yeah. sure. it's like performative almost. Yeah. Yeah, but the, like the fact that we have to use the word ally as opposed to the fact that you're a person who just really is disgusted by racism, inequality, and just other people not being treated as though they're valued in life. You know, like I think yeah. we have to actually come up with a word to <laughs> reflect that. And I think that's pretty sad, right? And for lack of a better term, I think it's mm -hmm. unfortunate that we have to like give credit to allies when really it's part of all of our human quality. Like we should all be in care of one another in that way. Um, so yeah, I do appreciate the conversation and thinking about the relational element to doing this work instead of just sort of owning the identity and thinking that that's enough because it's so much more than that. And in fact, to say you're an ally, you can do more harm if you're not thinking about how to do it well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always appreciate um, people taking the time and effort to like lay out steps for me to direct my intentions in a proper direction. So from my perspective as a white woman, these are all things that I definitely would have done in this process, but I'm like, yes, like I need to, it's helpful for me to know the path to take, to do the work that I want to and intend to do and making sure I'm doing it as well as I can and as properly as I can. So I appreciate these authors, the time that they took um, and the labor that they did to do this. Um, I'm curious, Sesson, if you're willing to share with us from your perspective, if someone were to go through these steps and include you, how would you feel during this process? I mean, I'm not sure how explicit the process is. I mean, yeah. much more subtle in the way the work is done or the relationship is, um, like the intention that mm -hmm. they put behind, um, like each of these sort of ideas or recommendations that were put forth. I just think I have been in relationship with people who identify themselves as allies and there is a performative element to it sometimes for me. And yeah. it's when like, sometimes you hear other people talk about them and how they respond to that, that I sometimes gather whether or not they're really caught up in the identity of being an ally or if they really just wanted to get to the work and make sure that something is changing, like, right? So I think sometimes I look at others to see how the person who's identifying as an ally mm. shows up 
there in that relationship. I like when you were talking about how they don't center themselves and like really put back the attention on the community, you know, and, and how they do that work. Because I see it so often where a white person gets so much praise for being in connection with a minoritized community. Um, and I'm like, huh? Isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? <laughs> like, um, so I get it. Like not everybody's doing that. So when there are folks, we want to sort of recognize that so more people are doing it, but it also feels like it's sometimes shifting the attention to issues that um, yeah. don't feel like it's about the cause. Yeah. That's a really good point. I think it's um, potentially a way to hold organizations more accountable to in terms of mm-hmm. um, really sort of setting some standards potentially for evaluating how leadership roles are filled and how um, uh, the voices we're paying attention to are sort of not continuing to be historically overrepresented in leadership. I mean, I'm thinking about a recent example in my workplace where um, senior leaders who are all older and none of whom were junior career um, women uh, created a solution to a lactation room issue. There was no oh. space for a lactation room to um, for people to be using their pump at work. Uh, and then they believe that they solved the use issue by putting a computer into the space so that these um, junior women uh, were less concerned about losing valuable work time by stepping out of the workspace to go use their pump. Um, And because they themselves had never even tried it, because they were not remotely early career, um, they... uh, did not realize those rooms needed pre-scheduling, that clinical templates for patient care were not aligned with how that pre-scheduling happens. And so they had solely worried about the computer and making sure they could continue to do all this work while they were pumping. And then all of, they delivered this intervention they were so proud of back to this group. And all these young women were like, what? Not a bit of this is what we would have asked for. Like what there's, but they weren't at the table and nobody looked around to say, are the people who could inform us best and drive sort of decision-making here in this conversation? And they weren't. And like, it's okay to take a 30 minute break, right? To like lactate. You don't have to simultaneously be uh, productive, right? (laughs) So that was my take. Um, I will say I work in academic medicine. you know, there's some variation in how people respond to that <laughs> specific. Yes, that was the first thing I heard was like, holy crap. Um, but about the point well taken that the people you're trying to, quote, help or be advocates for, I don't know. Who's your, maybe have them in the room. Have know. them be there. Who's Ask at your leadership tables? If they yeah. haven't had small children in 20 years, I mean, I don't. I also think you have to be mindful how you compensate those people too, whether yes. it's financially or otherwise. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the time, you know, groups are asked yeah. to solve for something they didn't create. And so it's mm. like, if you're going to put them in those spaces, you better make sure that you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Just, you, you know, that it's not another form of invisible labor, that they're yep. actually recognized for that work in a really, yeah. So resources. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Woohoo! Boo! 
finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture we hear relationship advice from our parents families and friends we see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and tv shows and we read endless advice spewed at us on social media all of those blogs and those numerous top 10 lists but a lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at Attached Podcast, or go straight to the source, attachpodcast.com. While you're at it, please kindly rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or just YouTube where you can see our lovely faces. And share, as always, with your loved ones. People love podcast recommendations. <laughs> I was talking to a friend the other day um, about uh, our podcast, and she's like, I just feel like the podcast space is saturated. Fair enough. <laughs> also, <laughs> you want to listen to ours? No? saturated cool 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 we have bonus good or bad advice for our lovely patreon subscribers thank you so much for your support consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash attached so today we have advice about grandparenthood a listener sent this in um, by prof uh miley oster um on instagram so she uh is an economist um, and she has additional advice and stuff that she pulls from research and her own things. So this one is a crowdsourced um, uh, tips about becoming a grandmother. And so it's crowdsourced from her uh, viewership. And they sent in um, some tips about becoming a grandmother. And um, uh, she picked the best ones. And here is what they are. Are you guys ready? The enthusiasm, I can't handle it. Yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> okay, based on readers' questions, I, readers' comments, I would give you three pieces of advice. Number one, don't offer any advice unless they ask you. Number All right, so number one, don't offer any advice to the children, to parents, you know, their children who are about to become parents, unless they ask you, what are our thoughts, good or bad advice? I think that's good advice. I think we maybe have talked about that on this podcast maybe a few times before um well you know what they say you can't learn anything unless you hear it seven times so. repetition is key but i mean i repeat this regularly in my teaching life and so i fully think this is important um uh, but especially in these really tricky life transitions and families where Ooh, people are so fast to give advice and ideas and tips. And ooh, I mean, I remember being on the receiving end personally, and it just can get quickly overwhelming and regularly unhelpful. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that respect of like, are you open to or looking for? I got to clarify what it is that this conversation is about before I just start jumping in and making suggestions. Oof. The advice I got from my aunt when I had my first child was, oh, you know what? Uh, and I probably shared this on the podcast. If they're constipated, just give them a bite of a jalapeno. They'll be fine. Oh, dang. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. <laughs> no, 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 they'll be fine. It'll really help them. Okay. Sesson, sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's almost sometimes insulting when people are quick to give you like a quick fix kind of answer, like as though you haven't maybe thought about it or 
that it's that simple. But when I hear it from someone of an older generation, I actually find it more tolerable, to be honest. It's something mm. about people around my age giving me that advice that makes me a little less tolerant of the conversation. Please, what do you even know? Yeah, I'm what like, you? what have you, like, you're super You're six months ahead of me <laughs> and like, please. And so I don't know, there's some like old wisdom when you're older that feel like, you know, you have to share and like get that. Like, slipping you're... into an English accent. Am I? Okay. <laughs> This is how much she holds up the old people. They all sound the wise like this. Yeah. It was meant to sound Ooh. wiser, not more. Oh, sorry. Um, so that's pretty much all I'll say about that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think I have maybe a baseline similar reaction to unsolicited advice, whether it was from an older generation or a younger generation. Or uh, my nine-year-old. Uh, excuse me, madam. Oh, that's it's when so- it's the best. Oh, my I- God. Not the younger they are. <laughs> the younger they are. It's so cute. It's like, you know, you don't take anything they're saying. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely laugh. You're right. It's hilarious. It's adorable. I mean, I find myself regularly questioning myself. My nine-year-old calls me out on stuff that I'm like, oh, damn. <laughs> I definitely did tell her something similar recently. Like, okay, well, that was for you, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my yes. gosh. This is great advice I got from an eight-year-old, one of my kids friends so uh, my car was in desperate need of cleaning the baby when he snacks it usually half of it ends up at the floor right i know shouldn't let my kids eat in the car but like the commute is a half an hour each direction like you try to not give children uh food when they're starving for a half an hour anyway uh, that wasn't directed at you as to people complaining about i know i was gonna say i didn't even think that there would need to be any advice given to you in this moment. <laughs> so my daughter's friend, I had we picked her up and she came and she doesn't use a booster seat anymore. So I had to move the booster seat uh, and there was totally like food and stuff. Usually you can't see it because the booster seat's on it. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me clean it up. So I had to clean it real quick for her. And then like I put a towel down and she was like full on giving me the side eye. Like I'm gonna barf in my mouth I said I'm so sorry the kids eat in the car I haven't vacuumed it I'm, I'm so sorry she was like well just maybe next time don't let them eat in the car and I said oh well you know the baby it's hard she was like well I understand the baby would probably need to eat in the car but maybe the six-year-old maybe he can wait and I was like oh you're so right That's... anyway I was just like she knows she's right <laughs> She and she's a better parent than I am at only eight years old. <laughs> oh man, that's a reality check right there. And it was. It was full. I was like, yes, ma'am. And I immediately yes, uh, uh, vacuumed my car intensely that weekend. Like, yeah, yes, ma'am. I regret for feeding you all. I can't embarrass my children like this with the car <laughs> messy. How could I? All right. Anyway, um, next one. Here's the second bit of advice. Number two remember that it was a pretty long time ago and some things are different and also it's hard to remember how hard it is okay so number two is this is a new grandmother right or grandparent remember that it was a long time ago and things are um, probably different and you also probably don't remember how hard having a newborn baby is good or bad advice sesson yeah there's sort of two sort of yeah just i'm picking up on in that but i I think 
um, I guess speaking to the latter first, I really like the idea of reminding grandparents to show compassion and grace, mm -hmm. <laughs> understanding around this period of time where it can just be really hard to show up, let alone to take care of someone else. So yeah, I think that is really helpful. I think a lot of the time new mothers can feel a lot of judgment, whether it's from total strangers or people really close to them. But I think especially when it's somebody you really maybe admire or have a lot of love for that criticism or critique can feel a lot more, I don't know, difficult to yeah. take. So I think it's helpful to remind, and I don't think grandparents, relatives are necessarily attempting to be harsh or critical. They just, you know, they know things a certain way and are communicating what that should be. And so it's helpful to send those little gentle reminders. Um, and then in terms of like the idea of things are different perhaps now it's like yeah you know you don't want to engage in reactive parenting which is to do what sort of is your default which is what you always knew right you want right. to be mindful of what is it the child needs in this context that they are in presently right and so I'm really big about being intentional and not just doing what was done to you or doing the opposite of what was done to you just to say you right didn't do it. Woods so um, I hear Sassen tackling it from sort of a present perspective view. I'm also going to sort of suggest that it's good advice from like how we treat past memories, right? That like all people have a tendency to romanticize the past. We have mm. a tendency to sort of um, shine up our memories a little bit and uh, do that to um, – have a more sort of positive sense of self, a more favorable view of how we were. It's yeah. sort of why we think the past was always like so much better than it is today. Like, oh, things were so much better back then, right? And grandparents are going to do this because this is just a human thing. Memories are shapeable. We shape them through the telling and retelling of them. And it's part of how we put together that identity of what becoming a parent was like for us. Um, and so not everyone romanticizes all memories, sure. And also, I certainly agree with the advice that you may not remember how hard it is um, and may not remember sort of all the particular challenges. And so sort of letting the new parent be your guide um, could be very valuable. Oh, I love it. Be present in the moment and also remember that we um, tend to polish our past memories. Gosh, you guys are so smart. Um, number three. And number three, if you come over, I know it, you really want to hold the baby, but also do the dishes. That's my advice. So yes, when you come over, of course, hold the baby, but also do the dishes is what she said. Uh, Woods, thoughts? I think we talked about this in an episode recently, I feel like. Or it's just it's something I feel so strongly about. <laughs> um, also, but to be fair, my mom also feels strongly about it. That, like, when you are needing to help a new parent, like, they need to and want to be spending time with their newborn. They're right. exhausted. Like, let them spend that time doing that really important bonding work. You'll get a chance to hold that child. Like, that's not – but the priority is, in helping them, actually give them – tangible like functional support do the things that they don't want to do that they can't do that they're too exhausted to do while they're holding and snuggling and um taking care of their new baby uh so i feel really strongly about this one. um and that's exactly how i got the help that i did from my mom and it was so valuable so sassin thoughts 
I really like that idea. And in many ways, it's like really, really, to me, sound advice, I think. In, but from a cultural perspective, sometimes mm-hmm. that is not somehow, I think families operate around the idea of getting to meet the child and getting that time. Sure. And also like, in some cultures, like you cannot go near anybody's kitchen, let alone wash their dishes for them. Like that, mm. that, that is offensive, let alone helpful. And so it really depends on, yeah. you know, who that person is and really having an understanding of what feels respectful to them, right? And what feels like. And what those tangible helping tools might be within that culture. It might be something completely different. Exactly. And that's so, what I think. Yeah. Sort of taking that on from like in a really culturally like thoughtful way, right? Like being really understanding of the community that you're yes. engaging in that sense. Yeah. I was thinking about somebody coming in to wash dishes in my family's house. <laughs> they would be yelled at and screamed at and all of these offenses. <laughs> Not to be me. It's just like, you know, there's some kind of like embarrassment, some kind of like, yeah. And go in and like clean somebody else's home. You know, there's that piece to it. But of course, logically, it makes sense. They really do, you know, they may mm-hmm. really benefit from that support. But if there's what other would, side to that, then what yeah. would be a tangible support and like your community that the families would, it would be helpful? Bringing over lots of food, yeah. right? Coming over and, um, you know, giving maybe the mom an opportunity to nap a little bit, things like that. Take you a know? shower. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still in the same genre of like doing things that are really like, mm-hmm. practical mm-hmm. and tangible, but there's certain things you can't do. Right? right. So, yeah. And my other recommendation for that, because this is what happens to me and putting up the dishes is fine, but maybe not at nine, eight in the morning when uh, the mom and baby are sleeping and clanging dishes around. Uh, you know, they're, they're that just personal like, example, Patricia. <laughs> just time and place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs>